Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode 14 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Casey Liss. Casey, hello. welcome to the show. Well, hello, thank you. <laughs> hello, how are you? I am well, I am well. My timing is already off, and by saying that, I'm compelling you to leave that little stumble in the show, so uh, that you can tell that uh, we're going we're gonna to take this real serious around here. No, that was perfect. I, I, I definitely <laughs> would never take that out. Um, that reminds me, my when uh, my band, when I was like 20 or something, recorded an album, I remember the person who was producing it for us that I coughed in the middle of singing one of the songs. And he was like, no, that's the best part. We have to leave it in. And I really like, and at the time, like you're kind of high on the whole like recording process because, you know, right. you're like in a studio for like five days and it wasn't very like air conditioned. It was summer in California. So I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And then afterwards, I'm like, I hate that cough with the fire. I, like, <laughs> I hated that part. It's like, uh, I can't remember the, the woman's name, but um, in Sympathy for the Devil, I think it was, mm-hmm. where the, the woman who did the, the, well, it wasn't really backup singing, but she has like a solo in the middle of it. And the, the, sto- the urban legend that I've heard, which is probably completely false, is that she was so into the, into the verse and so into singing it that her voice cracks and you can hear it on the recording. And she ended up like miscarrying the, the child that she was carrying at the time, like shortly thereafter, supposedly because of the, the track she laid down. Down on, I think it was sympathy for the devil. Uh, wow! And and I don't know if that's real or not, but that's intense. And it's a lot. It's it's like a cough, but much 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 worse. So really, not at all like a cough. Yeah, I have no follow up to that. Um, <laughs> uh, although I do remember when I was because uh, you know the show's about me interviewing myself. I do remember also <laughs> another band related story was that. Uh, when I was like 17 or so, my, you know, my voice was changing, I guess, or whatever. And so I would, my voice would kind of squeak when we were doing shows sometimes. I'd be like, nice. oh, it's just really dry. It's really dry. Like my throat's <laughs> so dry. I need more water. And now I'm like, no, that was just, I was just going through the change. Anyway, Casey, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, let's start off by, um, how would people know you? Right. So uh, if you know me at all, it would probably be through um, the Accidental Tech Podcast. I can't even say the name of my own show properly. Uh, The Accidental Tech Podcast is myself, uh, Marco Arment, and John Syracuse. You might know Marco from uh, Instapaper or Overcast, and he was also co-founder of Tumblr. You might know John Syracuse. Uh, as the co-host of, of several different shows currently, but previously he wrote uh, novella-length reviews of what was then uh, Mac OS X, what is now Mac OS. And uh, the three of us have been doing ATP for, golly, it's been about four years now. That's bananas. Um, and that's and a weekly discussion show about really anything tech-related, but typically starting from the position of what's Apple up to these days, and then we kind of spider out from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably my favorite podcast actually or one of them oh stop it's, it's really good it's it's right up there it's in the top five for sure well, thank you i don't uh, that's very I, can, I can't rate once i get into that that area you know but it's it's one of the i have it definitely marked as one of my uh you know the um in overcast you can say like these are the special shows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's definitely one of those although i'll be honest i have about 15 of those so <laughs> well, i do i do have a lot of favorite shows but it is sure. one of my favorites but clearly we are in good company and that's all that matters. So thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Absolutely. Um, well, it's true. And uh, so I want to talk to you about development and stuff. But since I, uh, you know, so 
you mentioned, uh, since we've mentioned podcasting and all of that, and that might be what people know you from, how did you get into that? It's a funny story. Um, so I'd known Marco for, I don't know, 20, 25 years now. We met as kids, um, and uh, we kind of fell out of touch as we got into like high school and college, and then kind of fell back in touch um, shortly after uh, we both graduated from college. Marco and I are the same age. And I don't remember who reached out to whom first. It doesn't really matter. But basically, we, we found each other again not too long after we both uh, graduated college. And, uh, you know, I kept up with him. And then I saw his meteoric rise through Tumblr, through Instapaper, and, and through Build and Analyze, which was a show he was doing with Dan Benjamin on 5 by 5 And, you know, I, I watched Margo on the rise. And, and I started dabbling with iOS development. I was not taking it seriously at the time, but I was dabbling with it. And I went to WWDC 2011. And that I believe was the first time Marco and John Syracuse met in person. They had known each other through the internet, but had never met. And I was, Mm -hmm. if not, if I wasn't there when they met, which I'm pretty sure I was, I'm pretty sure it was in line uh, waiting for the keynote. But I, you know, I was there that week when, when they kind of really got to know each other. So fast forward a couple of years, uh, it's now late, 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 late uh, 2013, and build and analyze kind of comes to an end simultaneously, but happenstantially. Uh, Hypercritical, which is possibly the best podcast that has ever been recorded, uh, which was John Syracuse's podcast, that came to an end almost exactly the same moment. And I started needling Marco and saying, "Hey, you know, we should do a show about cars. Like, even if we never distribute it, we should just talk about cars because it was something that Marco didn't ever really talk about, or not that much anyway. It's something that I really enjoy. It's something we both really enjoy, even though I think even Marco would it concede that we know almost nothing about. <laughs> and Marco said, you know what? John is kind of bored these days because he's not doing hypercritical anymore. Let's get him involved. And that, that was all Marco. And so we started recording a show that we knew from the outset would be a mini mini series. And that show was called Neutral. And it's available to this day at neutral.fm. And it was a short-lived pod, uh, podcast about cars by three dudes who should know better than to talk about cars because we really don't know what we're talking about. And I had tremendous fun with that. And you know, people started to pay attention to who I was, if by no other reason than because I was rubbing shoulders with John and Marco. And what ended up happening was after we recorded that show, we ended up just kind of shooting the stuff, chewing the fat or whatever. And we often ended up talking about development related things because we're three nerds, we're three you know developers. And Marco had the presence of mind to put the a couple of these kind of bootleggy recordings on, I think, SoundCloud, if I'm not mistaken. And at the time, it was surprising, but in retrospect, it wasn't at all surprising. Um, it turns out that people really gravitated to that and really, really liked us talking about tech because, guess what? We actually kind of know what we're talking about in that department. And so it ended up that we started recording both. We would record Neutral, and then we would record this other tech show. And then the other tech show kind of started to get legs, even more so than Neutral did. In fact, quite a bit more so than Neutral did. And that's where the name comes from. It's the Accidental Tech Podcast, because really it was created accidentally out of the post-show conversations after Neutral, and that became the show. And so Neutral ended up going away after 12 episodes plus a bonus episode, and uh, ATP has carried on ever since. So I think the first real episode of ATP was something like March of April or March or April of 2013. And as we record this, it's July of 2017, and we're on episode like 230-something or other. So it's been going strong. And, and to this date, we haven't had a week without an episode with all three of us with, a, with one or two specific exceptions for specific reasons. So it's been a long road, but I'm really enjoying it, and I'm super lucky. Two comments on what you just said. Number one, mm-hmm. 
been four years that you guys have been doing this show, and that just reminded me. Oh my god, I'm getting old. It is know, four years. Right? That seems like yesterday, literally. Mm-hmm. And that's four years. Oh my god. <sighs> okay. Second is that um, my boss at my previous job that uh, I just left a couple weeks ago um, was a. Uh, I had mentioned before we were like talking about podcasts we wanted uh, for advertising on or some mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. related. Anyways, for some reason I had mentioned ATP as a podcast, or we were just talking about podcasts maybe. And he'd been like, "Oh, you know, I don't listen to that one, but I loved their show Neutral." I was he's he was like the <laughs> biggest Neutral fan, but he never he, never really he didn't make the transition to ATP. Wow, well, he might be the only one. I mean, so the funny thing is, like, I, I poke fun and and I'm I tend to be fairly self-deprecating, but and I poke fun about neutral. But in some ways, neutral is kind of always going to be my first love, right? Like, it was so carefree and silly and in so many ways preposterous. Like, we really had no business talking about car-related things. The three of us have a, actually a fair bit of theoretic, theoretical knowledge, but almost no practical knowledge. And <laughs> and it was, it was so much fun and so low pressure. And I mean... At ATP, it's accidental, right? Like that's part of the the title of the show. But yeah, at the same time, yeah, we didn't exactly. We didn't mean to, but uh, it, it 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 is something we take pretty seriously, despite that. Uh, it's it's very serious in its lack of seriousness, if that makes any darn sense at all. And so mm-hmm. there's a different kind of pressure with ATP, and, and and certainly you know there's quite a few more listeners to ATP than there ever were of neutral. So you know it's 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 a much more it's much more pressure filled show, even though I do absolutely love doing it. And I am so lucky that I am, uh, that I am able to do it and am compensated even the least little bit by a few for it. So well, mm-hmm. all three of us are crazy lucky. Yeah. And I, I would say that you, in order to record four years of shows without missing a week, you probably would have to take it pretty seriously. Um, I've just been doing this show for a few months, and all I have to do is get one other person on once a week, <laughs> uh, one other person on once a week. And it's like, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, there's, uh, doing these things takes more time than you would think it is. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, I'm, uh, I'm pretty much, uh, a diva when it comes to this stuff. You know, I show up, I record, I send Marco my files and then I walk away and Marco does the heavy lifting of, of, you know, doing the edit and all that. I do actually do 98 percent of the work on the show notes so if the show notes are stinky that's probably my fault but if the show notes are great that's probably my fault so um i I do i do the show notes uh and marco does the edit and john even though we ask him not to tends to at least a little bit curate the show notes the 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 show Mm -hmm. notes that we used to record with when i when i previously had said show notes i mean the stuff that's in in the podcast and i mean like the outline right right so john does like the pre-show outline i do the outline that's that's given or shown to listeners if that makes any sense so Mm -hmm. so we all have a hand in it and and we do take it seriously and it's and every summertime it gets completely bananas because you know we recorded last week twice i believe it doesn't really matter but we recorded like twice last week i don't believe we're recording this week we're recording a double a a double header episode a week from friday so we're going to record for like three or four hours straight and just kind of figure out two shows to come out of that and that's because we don't plan well when it comes to our our individual vacations and so basically we're all on vacation like one week after another and we have almost no overlap when we're all at home so yeah, we try real hard. We do take it seriously, but it is kind of a goofy, silly show all at the same time. 
Yeah, well, uh, one other thing. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, that specific show was uh, that you guys recently did this uh, live. You actually, you know, you're saying it's like a silly thing that, you know, you and your friends do. And then uh, you had a thousand people watch you at WBC or something, though, <laughs> which is pretty right? amazing. I, I was there. I sat next to uh, like Gus and Federico was there. There's a bunch of people around. But um, mm-hmm. no, we all watched you guys do this live show and it was great. Yeah, it's it's utterly bananas. And, you know, I wrote I wrote this on my website and, and uh, it's it's hard because I'm proud of it, yet I don't want to be like, yes, look at me. You know, I can draw a thousand people all myself. You know, it's not like that. But, um, you know, it's funny because my mom growing up, you know, she she's she's not one to believe in reincarnation, but she always used to joke like, hey, you know, man, if I if I can ever have like another life. I want to be like a, a musician or, or like a actor or something. So when I walk out on stage, like all these people that are there cheering for me, like how amazing must that be? And she doesn't mean it in like the, Oh, my ego is so huge way. Just like how, how, you know, bonkers would that be? And although we never really had that walk on stage moment at the recording, like you, you can't help but look around and think oh, there are a thousand human beings here or near as makes no difference that are here to listen to me and my two friends kind of goof off and talk about nerdy stuff. Like how bananas is my life and how lucky am I that this is, this is where my life has turned you know, and the way my life has gone. And, and it was completely dumbfounding to me that, that and, it, and I thought it went so well. And I was so thankful for, for Marco and, and Stephen Hackett for setting everything up for AltCon for, for kind of facilitating it and taking care of almost all of the administrivia so we didn't have to. And for everyone that, that, that showed up, it is so unbelievably flattering and I'm so thankful for it. And it was a once in a lifetime experience. I don't know if we'll do it again next year to, to head off any questions. We might, we might not. Uh-huh. It's not John's favorite thing to do. I think Marco and I tend to like it. Um, maybe we just have bigger egos. I don't know, but, um, we'll see what happens. I don't want to make any sort of even implied guarantee that it will happen next year, but we'll probably at least discuss it and we'll see what actually ends up happening. Yeah. You'll have to get, uh, you'll have to get Tim Cook on next year, right? Yeah. Right. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no John Gruber. I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. I love that. Everybody was predicting before, uh, everybody was predicting, you know, before the show I heard a dozen different people be like, it's going to be Tim Cook this year at um, the Daring Fireball live show. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, so I'm like, no, it's, there's, it's going to be what it is. Like, yep. I, I feel like Tim, Tim Cook would be an awfully big get, but um, yeah, that's the thing. It, it would be a big get, but I don't think it would be as good a show because there is no scenario in, in my personal opinion that Tim Cook can ever take off the CEO hat and granted, you know, Schiller and, and Federici, they don't really take off their, you know, vice president hats, but I feel like they're permitted to be a little more human and a little more real than Tim is. And that's not an indictment of Tim Cook. It's just that's his position. You know, he doesn't really have a choice, but be kind of all 100 percent all the time. Whereas I think the two of them, not only do they play well off each other, I think they complement each other well. And, and John is a really great interviewer, too. But. I think they're allowed to be to let their hair down a little bit in a way that I don't think Tim Cook would allow himself, even though strictly speaking, he's the boss and he could absolutely do whatever he wanted. Yeah, I think you're actually uh, correct that they are the right people to do that. Not that if, you know, Tim showed up next year, that wouldn't be amazing. Right. But I do think as far as like for being a good show, like in a bubble, uh, yep. Not just oh my god, Tim Cook, the CEO of the biggest company in the world, is on a, on a podcast. <laughs> uh, for being a good show, I think that uh, 
those two are fantastic uh, for the reason of that, you know, like they're both, I think, probably more connected to like the products, you know, they're mm-hmm. like, you know, like Craig's like an engineer and, uh, you know, Phil from everything we know is that he's like kind of, you know, pretty involved with the product side of things, yep, uh, yep. you know, so I think that, yeah, I think they are a good fit and they both have such, you know, they both have great personalities, although I'm sure Tim does too. So I actually have no, actually know nothing about that. Um, <laughs> I know that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, so moving on uh, from podcasting, uh, how did you, you're, you are a, you're a programmer, a developer, uh, et cetera. Uh, you've recently, sort of recently, God, it's probably been, how long has it been that you've been doing iOS full-time? About a year and a half. Okay, so that doesn't make me feel as old uh, since I heard that you did that. Uh, but so you know, you've been doing iOS full time for a year and a half. Uh, but before and before that, you were a .NET developer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who toyed around, I guess, as a side projects in yep. um, in iOS. How'd you get started in programming, like in general? So the I'm trying to figure out an, an abridged version because this show isn't supposed to be that long, and I can go on for like six hours. Um, the abridged version is. When I was a kid, uh, well, up until very recently, my dad worked for IBM, and so we always had PCs in the house. And I oftentimes wanted to play like a, a computer game, and and this was when I was really young. So DOS was the the system, the operating system that we were using at the time. And I, and I would always have to ask dad for help, like, how do I do this? How do I do that? How do I do this? How do I do that? And eventually, dad somewhat angrily but somewhat helpfully handed me the DOS user's manual, the the book, and said, just. just just figure it out. And sure enough, mm-hmm. at like eight years old or however old I was at the time, I read the DOS book. And I'm sure I digested, you know, a third of it at best, but I read it. And so I start so computers started being less of an enigma at that point. And then moving on, you know, I started creating like bash uh, or not bash, sorry, bat scripts in DOS. And so I remember ha- vividly having this menu system that would run in my auto exec bat um, and would let me like start all of my different games. So like the first tier of the menu would be like games versus applications versus whatever. And, the, and there were like, in a way that you can only do in DOS, there were like those, those double lined um, boxes that you would draw like character by character oh, yeah. around them. It's hard to describe verbally, but you know what I'm thinking of if you've ever used DOS. I think DOS. anybody who's used DOS as a, in the 90s knows what you're talking exactly. about. So I would do that. I remember vividly that the backdrop, like the background of the screen was red and the font was yellow, which I thought was like so cool at eight years old. It was garish to look at. Hot dog. But, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I made these like menu systems and then eventually, um, I don't remember, I honestly don't remember how, but somehow or another, I came up with a QBasic compiler. So this was at the time that QBasic was packaged with, I think, pretty much every MS-DOS installation. But mm-hmm. you couldn't get a compiler. So you'd have to load QBasic and load the, the basic file, the .bas file, and then you could run it. But I somehow or another, like through my friend, another kid who's like cousins, uncles, dads, sisters, brothers, former roommate or something like that had a QBasic compiler that somehow made it into my hands. So I could create an honest to goodness application, a .exe file from basic. And oh man, mm-hmm. that was amazing. And so I wrote like stupid choose your own adventure games that really were like three screens long because I would get bored immediately. But you know, I did that sort of thing. Uh, fast forward a few years, I uh, was visiting my um my grandparents lake house and basically the only other kid there that was my age was this guy marco and 
I don't remember if he brought it to the table. I think he did, but it might have been me. One of us had Visual Basic 1.0. Mm-hmm. And so we did a choose your own adventure game, but visually. And that's what we did instead of going outside and playing during the summertime. And then um, eventually I went to Virginia Tech. I studied computer engineering. I got a job um, after that writing slot machines uh, in DOS, of all things. So I was using the Wacom C++ compiler in DOS. So debugging wasn't really a thing. Debugging was print statements, which was kind of wild. After that, I worked for... Caveman debugging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. But it's still useful to this day. I mean, it taught me a lot. Um, Uh You know, I would FTP my executable onto the test rig. It was... It was kind of barbaric in retrospect, but it was it was a great learning experience. After that, I worked for North Grumman for a little while, worked on some navigation systems in C++, and then that's where I kind of half taught myself, half learned C Sharp. And then after that, I moved into from defense contracting consulting into honest-to-goodness consulting, but with a firm, and did that across two jobs for almost a decade. And then a couple, almost two years ago now, I uh, somehow was able to parlay that experience into um, doing Objective-C and Swift at my current job. And, and like I said, that was about a year and a half ago. And I had been doing Objective-C on the side for several years. I taught myself using Aaron Hillegas's book, as most people do. And I'd never really done it that seriously, despite having gone to every WWDC uh, 2011 through today, except last year, because I didn't win the lottery. And, uh, and yeah, so I had some friends that worked at this company where I am now, and they were kind of able to vouch for me and say, hey, look, you know, he may not know all that much about this particular platform uh, in terms of, you know, actually writing apps, but he's not a completely dumb guy. And, you know, he can probably pick it up <laughs> as it goes along. And so mm-hmm. that, that's so far worked out for a year and a half now. Well, it sounds like a whirlwind journey. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm talking about literally, you know, over 20 like twenty years. years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm hyper compressing it, but but yeah, it's it's been wild. It's been fun. It's been cool to be able to reinvent myself a couple of times. I mean, yeah, I'm still a developer for sure. But you know, I mm-hmm. went from C plus plus and DOS to C plus plus and Windows to C sharp and Windows to now Objective C and and even more lately to doing Swift, which is super cool. That is that is super cool because Swift is super cool. Uh, I like it so much. I made a whole show about programming (laughs) um (laughs) but uh the uh the thing that i want to ask you about out of everything you just mentioned which is the most interesting to me is uh is um so q basic i was way (laughs) in q basic as a kid and the thing you were talking about with the compiler is uh it's weird because i you know you're talking about you and marco and having visual basic 1.0 i'm like did just every like person of like who grew up in the nineties and wanted to do programming, like do the same path because I'm like, Oh, that's very similar. Um, but, uh, the thing you were talking about is, so what came bundled on, uh, your DOS machine in the nineties or, you know, I think it was mm-hmm. for a long time was, uh, Q basic 1.1. And that was just the interpreter, right. That was mm-hmm. bundled and you had to go get what was called QB not QBasic, just QB 4.5 was the compiler. Oh, uh, yeah, that and does ring well. mm-hmm. Yeah, and you could find that on the back of a truck or, right. you know, on the internet, wherever. Uh, and the project that I made was really silly. So I was in when I was in seventh grade, we had a typing class or whatever that we had to do in school. But, like, I already knew how to type, you know, because I was a giant nerd. Uh, <laughs> so I knew how to type at the time I was, like, 14. So, but we were doing them on these old computers. So we had a QBasic on them, or maybe I brought in on a disc, honestly, or something, whatever it was, I ended up making like my own little, uh, windowing system that used the mouse, use the mouse. And then you could like, eventually you could make like, uh, 
little scripts in it so you could like make a little app for my little oh that's amazing shell yeah uh and then um and then i think that eventually the teacher saw what i'd been actually doing this whole time and was like when did you how did this happen like when did you do this uh yeah so that was my q basic story uh i was i was way into q basic in the 90s um so so you're doing swift you're doing all these things mm-hmm. uh before that, you were doing C sharp, and you're doing defense contracting, and all these things. Um, what's it? So it seems you know you kind of have a leg in you know the big industry, and you've sort of moved on to the like slower, you know, the faster, smaller uh, consulting shop kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what's what's that transition been? It seems like you started with like the biggest thing, right? Like a big. Uh, a big slow moving behemoth, which would be like defense contracting, sure. right? And you've moved down to a smaller, uh, you know, Swift iOS shop. So what what's that been like? Yeah, you know, there's pluses and minuses minuses to everything, right? Like, so my first job when I was doing the the slot machines, that was a super small firm, and it was right out of college. And you know, the, all the people I worked with, like none of them, whether or not they were a little bit older, like none of them had families. They just lived and breathed work, and. And so, you know, I, when, when I get my first like big boy job and I'm rolling into work in shorts and flip flops, like, you know, that's a pretty important thing when you're 22 years old or whatever it is. Look mm-hmm. at me. I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is not a big town, but I can roll into my, into work in shorts and flip flops. Aren't I s- just s- too cool for school? And, um, and I learned a lot from there. And, and then it was after that, that I went to Grumman, which is, you know, the big defense contractor. And the disadvantage to being at a big firm like a Northrop Grumman is that, to your point, nothing happens quickly. You know, everything is slow and methodical and planned and talked about, talked to death even. But the interesting thing about being at a firm that big is that everything is repeatable and reliable. And when they came up with an estimate, and I wish to some degree that I was older when I saw this go down so I could appreciate it more, but when we came up with an estimate at Grumman, we hit that estimate. Almost always. Certainly there were failures from time to time, but generally speaking, Mm -hmm. we hit that estimate, especially for this kind of smaller things where at a place where I like where I work today, you know, we're, we're agile and we well ish and we try to follow agile methodologies ish. And, you know, basically the, the mantra is it'll get done when it gets done. And that's, that's not necessarily bad. And as a developer, it's kind of nice because you spend more time, actually in Xcode or Visual Studio or what have you. Um, but the downside is, you know, if we're looking at like a boulder of a feature, we don't know when it's going to be done. Like Maybe in a month, maybe in six, who knows? Whereas at a Grumman, you know, they're like CMMI level three or they were at the time, I think. And so that basically what, what, means, what is CM? So whatever uh, you just said, man, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but what's it mean though? So, yeah, yeah. so it's capability, maturity, model integration. So what that basically oh, means okay. in, in plain English is that your process, your, and it doesn't, I don't think it's specific to software development, but we'll, I'll speak about it in terms of software development. What that means is your process is pretty reliable and pretty repeatable. So level one is like, completely you know shooting from the hip pew 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 like we'll get it done someday we and then level five is i can tell you down to the minute when this stuff is going to ship and uh, of course i'm exaggerating a bit but that's kind of the idea uh-huh. and so at the time i was there we were cmmi3 which meant that we were taking stuff pretty 
pretty darn seriously. Now, admittedly, it was all waterfall, which most developers would gag over, but the, re- the nice thing about it was, like I said, it was repeatable, reliable, predictable, etc. in a way that Agile kind of deliberately eschews, but and, and that's in many ways an advantage, but in some ways it's a disadvantage because, you know, if somebody at my firm wants to know when some big feature is done, we kind of say, eh, eventually. <laughs> and that's that's not necessarily the best approach, you know. But mm-hmm. but all in all, I feel like I fit best at a firm about this size. My company is somewhere between somewhere around 400 people, I think. Uh, the particular group I'm in, the, the entire mobile team, both platforms is like 10 or 15 people. And, and mm-hmm. that's where I think I fit in best. Big enough that we aren't completely shooting from the hip, but not so big that you can't steer the ship relatively quickly. No, that's, that's a good size. Uh, what's interesting though, what you said about, um, you know, the more, you know, when you're working in the defense industry and mm-hmm. the, um, the, uh, the waterfall kind of method, but that they did actually hit their estimates is I've always thought that the point with agile is they're like, well, we don't really worry about those sorts of estimates because nobody ever hits them anyway. Yeah, they're like, yeah. it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So what's the point of making them? So the fact that they did hit them is kind of, uh, unique, I think. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, I'm also looking back at this you know, job that I had something like 10 years ago with rose colored glasses, right? Like it probably wasn't as reliable as I remember it, but, but your point is completely fair that agile's kind of manifesto says among other things, well, maybe not the manifesto, but kind of the, the driving force behind agile is, you know, you never really can know how long something's going to take. So let's just embrace it and roll with it. And let's be, guess what? Agile. Um, uh-huh. but but waterfall is, if you're not familiar, is basically the idea of we're going to think and talk this thing to death before we ever write a line of code. But by the time we start writing code, every edge case, every what if, every, ooh, did you think about? All of those are taken care of. Where agile, the whole idea is, yeah, you throw something against the wall and see what sticks. And if it doesn't stick, well, you adjust a bit, throw it again. And there are certainly uh-huh. advantages to both. I've I've seen Agile done really, really, really well at a past job. And when it's done really well, it's like freaking magic. The problem is a lot of people, like the firm I'm at today, have the best of intentions and try real hard, but don't always succeed in doing it exactly right. And then it becomes kind of a hodgepodge of kind of scrummer fall is what a lot of people like mm-hmm. to say, where it's kind of waterfally in that you do a lot of talking and thinking up front, uh, but then it's also kind of agile in that you have sprints and uh, uh, retro, what, retro, what's the full word? Retrospectives. Yeah. And um, grooming sessions and planning sessions and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So when I ran the uh, scrum team at my old company, I, I decided to change the names of them because I thought they all sounded kind of boring. <laughs> so I changed, I think groom, I think they call it backlog grooming yep. is what you call when you go through mm-hmm. the stories and talk about them. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I changed the name of it at my company to Storytime. <laughs> much better. I thought you were going to go for like gardening or something. That's even better. Yeah. Um. So th- I I think that's true. The um. Yeah, and I think there's a couple things to say about that. Uh, one is that, yeah, I th- I think the conceit with Agile is, as I said before, just that there is an assumption in Agile that waterfall doesn't work mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. that it is completely broken and can't work even in the best scenarios yep. which you can ar- totally argue with i guess uh you know which may not be true because you're that's obviously like a partisan opinion right sure. um but i think that is the conceit is that like waterfall basically doesn't work at all ever and so we have to so like we're not i don't think it's saying that like 
I think the idea is if it did work in a perfect world, that if you could think of all the edge sure. cases, that would be great. But you can't. So, so embrace it. Don't even try. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and I was also I would also say that uh, the thing with agile is also what you uh, alluded to or said, which is that you really need to have buy-in from everybody oh, to yeah. make agile work. Mm-hmm. No, it's absolutely true. Because one thing that I, I see it as is that when you when you really can get like the managers and like the product people like bought into it, it can actually be a really great tool to empower the developers because they can come and say, we just want to do this one more feature. And they'll say, all right, well, what do you want to remove? Because we've used all our points. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, it, it's funny you say that because so if you're not familiar with Agile, the, the short, short, short version is you do work in two-week sprints. Well, it doesn't have to be two weeks, but generally speaking, it's two-week sprints. So you bite off a series of tasks which are captured in stories. And each of those stories has a certain amount of points. And the points, not unlike whose line it is, is it anyway, they're sort of kind of made up. Like there's a science behind it, which I'm not going to get into for now, but suffice to say there's points, right? And mm-hmm. the idea is after you do maybe two or three sprints, you know by what the team has delivered and achieved, well, the team as a whole can deliver 20 points in a sprint. So in in a two-week window, it's reasonable to expect, based on past behavior, not based on what people think, but based on actual past behavior, that this team can deliver 20 points. So for the next sprint, we'll bite off about 20 points. And, And what Colin was just saying is, you know, the most magical moment that I had with regard to, to, to Agile is exactly what you described, Colin, which is, we, this was when I was consulting, and our product owner, like, really got it in a way that I've never seen a product owner get it before. And she wanted to, like, kind of spike something into the sprint. So she wanted, she wanted something either in the current sprint or maybe the next sprint that we hadn't talked about before. And what was magical was she said to us, I want to get Foo into, the, into this sprint how many points is this so I can take away, you know, a commensurate amount of points? Because she knew Uh that's the currency of Agile, right? So if she wanted to put in a five-point story, the only way to keep us delivering on target is to take away five points worth of stories, maybe one five-point story, maybe a three and a two, whatever the case may be. And that moment when we didn't have to like argue, we didn't have to to barter with her, she just understood innately like, okay, if I want to add five, I got to take away five. It sounds like that's so simple, but you'd be surprised, listeners, how difficult it is to get that into somebody's head. And it was just magic. Yeah, uh, I was looking up one other thing as we're talking, which is uh, because this is the software methodology show. Uh, <laughs> one thing, the thing, uh, the thing that I like about the points is you know, so it's an estimate that the developers come up with, and I'm not like the biggest agile scrum person, but like we did it at my old company like three years ago, and I read a book about it because if I'm going to do something, I want to you know mm-hmm. do it right. I want to know what I'm doing. Uh, one thing I like about the estimates is they are done in uh, using Fibonacci. Yep. Yep. Be- so it's 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, you know, and then it's 55, 89, 144. And the idea, so like that can be the value of how big of a task you think that is. And what's, uh, what I think is kind of genius about that is the idea is that as humans, like we're better at estimating small tasks. So like we know the difference between a one and a two or like a two and a three, 
But once we get to like 55, we wouldn't know like this is a 57 or a 55. So it goes 55 <laughs> to 89. Like the numbers get bigger because we're not that good at estimating things when like they're big. So at a certain point, it's just like this is just a really big task. And like it's more uncertain. Like it becomes less certain as you get bigger. Yeah. And in the part of the conceit of Agile is that you never talk about hours. And especially as a consultant, like your world is based around hours. And so the idea is, generally speaking anyway, for a for a team, you as a team agree, what is a one point story? And so the typical answer to that is like, let's change something, some bit of text that's on screen. Like maybe let's change the name of a button or the, the text displayed on a button from login to sign in. However much time mm-hmm. and how really, however difficult that is, we'll call that one point. So then when you have a new task, like maybe changing a bar button item from, I don't know, doing an addition to, an, to a deletion. And that's completely contrived, but let's just roll with it. Well, is that mm-hmm. twice as hard as changing login to sign in? Is it three times as hard? Is it five times as hard? And so everything is relative and it's based on what the team decides. Because in the end of the day, it doesn't matter if a one-point story equates to one hour of work or 80 hours of work. I mean, hopefully it isn't 80, but you know what I'm driving at. As long as Mm -hmm. everyone's consistent about what one point versus two points versus three points, et cetera, what that means, eventually that that becomes a currency, like I was saying earlier, and it's understood. And if it's different between teams, that's okay, as long as everyone within the team understands it. And it's it's a really powerful estimation me- uh, method, and it really can work phenomenally well. But I couldn't agree with you more, Colin, that it takes everyone, top to bottom, buying in 100% for it to really work. And generally speaking, especially in larger companies, but not exclusively in larger companies, it's hard to get everyone to buy into it because eventually somebody high up the chain, typically in the C-suite is going to say, well, when are we going to get this feature? And, you know, with agile, once you have a velocity, once you understand how many points your team delivers in a sprint, you can get a pretty decent estimate. But the, the whole idea of agile is nothing set in stone. You have to roll with it. You Mm -hmm. have to be agile. And so the good news is you can get a pretty decent, pretty reliable estimate, but the bad news is it's not something you would want to sign your life to because the whole point of agile is rolling with it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I think that all makes all of the sense in the world. Uh, it seems, uh, yeah, I'd say I was going to make a joke, but I forgot what it was, but (laughs) so pretend I said something really funny there. It was hilarious. Uh, Good. Uh, so the, um, no, yeah, I think that makes sense. And yeah, the, just the fact that it can actually be really empowering to developers, but, uh, it sort of requires, you know, those C-level people maybe to be willing to concede some of that power, right? So that in order to do that, um, and if they, if they aren't, then the whole system just kind of doesn't work at all, which is what I think is the problem with a lot of those things. So, uh, Speaking of development, uh, we talked about the coolest language you ever did, which was QBasic. But next, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, because I don't know a lot of people who are, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in the .NET world and done a lot of uh, C-sharp specifically. Um, wh- what's that transition been like from C-sharp to Swift? Because, I mean, C-sharp is also like a modern language with lots of things. It's probably more mature than Swift. Sure. Uh, so like, what do you miss? What are the differences? So the funny thing about Swift is if you ask me, it is the Rorschach test of, of languages. And that's that inkblot test that everyone kind of lampoons and you always mm-hmm. see movies and whatnot. But I've talked to people who are Perl devel- developers like Syracuse and, and he'll say, oh yeah, that totally comes from Perl. 
and I'll talk to people who are JavaScript developers. And I actually, believe it or not, don't have that many problems with JavaScript. It's got its warts, but everything does. And so anyway, I'll talk to a JavaScript developer and they'll say, oh, 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 that totally comes from JavaScript. And I'll talk to an Objective-C developer, in, in especially earlier in Swift's life, but even now, oh, yeah, that totally comes from Objective-C. And to me, as a C-sharp developer, guess what? Oh, do I ever see things that come from C-sharp? And of course, the, the, the obvious question is, well, like what? And off the top of my head, I can't think of a lot. But <laughs> I can assure you that, um, like, properties is a good example. Um, you know, uh-huh. properties, not that they're unique to C-sharp, but the, the just stylistically, they look very similar to C-sharp. Um, kind of having having classes that can be in multiple parts in the same file if not in multiple files that that's very c sharpy um there's there's lots mm-hmm. of little things like that and so for me going to swift for the most part was not that bad at all the things that have been more difficult for me have been the functional sides of it so the team i'm working with is really into functional programming and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a different way of thinking about writing code. And then that's exacerbated because we use RX Swift, which is kind of uh, taking that to the nth level. And and so anyway, the functional programming part of it is a little bit weird and wild and different, but by and large, Swift, Swift hasn't been that bad. The one thing I feel like I miss the most, which is kind of bananas and silly, but I just feel like it was such a useful tool is having a good introspection API or what I would call it in .NET mm-hmm. is reflection. So that's when you can look at a class and say, what are the properties on this class? And, and what are the types of those properties? And, and, and at runtime saying, hey, if there happens to be a property called, I don't know, age on this class, and if it happens to be an int, go ahead and set it to 21. And that in and of itself seems like kind of bananas. And I know you can do it in Objective-C and, and there's a little bit of that with mirrors in Swift, but it's not uh-huh. near as good as it was in C-sharp. And as an example of a place where that was very useful is the combination of reflection and annotations. So if I had a struct or a class in C-sharp that represented, say, a JSON payload, well, what if I wanted to call... Um, uh, uh, the Maybe it's like a person, like I'm representing a person. And... I want to call the person's first name, first name. I want to call their last name, last name. And I want to call their age. The property for their age is just called age. But the JSON payload calls their age person age for whatever reason. What I can do is mm-hmm. I can mark that property with an annotation and say, hey, in the JSON payload, this is going to be person age. But here, you know, it's associated with the property of age. This is very hard to do verbally, but the point I'm driving at is you can kind of self-document that struct that represents the JSON payload, and then at Mm -hmm. runtime, you can look through your JSON and say, okay, I've got a thing that says it's personage. Let's look at all the properties in this struct, and are any of them named personage? And if, if none of them are, as it would be the case here, are any of them matching, say, are any of them saying, well, my JSON payload would be personage, even though my name is not personage. Oh, sure enough. Age is marked as being associated with personage. So I'm just going to go ahead and set that to 21 or whatever. And so that, that self-documenting, that introspection is so powerful. And yes, you can make an argument that you would never want your payload information interspersed in your structs or your classes or whatever. That should be separated, blah, 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 blah. But it's a powerful tool to have. And I really miss having it. But it's, uh-huh. I think in a lot of ways, it was like my shiniest hammer. And so everything looked like a nail to me. And it's probably for the uh-huh. best that, that I don't have it right now, because I would just be reflecting all the things. Well, you know, a little reflection never 
is good for everybody. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that, that makes sense what you said. It's, uh, I guess I can picture the concept, but obviously the syntax, I have no idea. Yeah, but yeah. That, that makes sense what you said and why that'd be useful. The, uh, the thing that I've heard you talk about with C-sharp, which I don't think C-sharp is the only language to do this, but uh, Swift uh, notably does not do this, um, is the whole async await thing. I think you're the first person I heard talk about that, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, it's funny because I actually got out of C-sharp around the time that async and await really, really, really got popular. But the short, short version of it is you can say, and I'm probably going to butcher the details because I haven't thought C-sharp in a while, but it's something along the lines of you can say in the middle of a function, I would like to await the response from some function call. So as an example, uh-huh. this this function call is going to go to the network. Just let me know when it's done. Just go and do its thing and then come back to me when when I have a return value. And this is sort of kind of like JavaScript's like, you know, callback hell, but but the thing is there's mm-hmm. no callback there. You're saying it looks synchronous. Like if you look at the way the function is written, it looks as though it's synchronous. But in reality, it's asynchronous. And so what this is, if I'm not mistaken, is a whole shed load of compiler magic behind the scenes. But basically, you can write code as though it's synchronous when in reality, it's asynchronous. And that's something that is really, really unbelievably powerful because it's so crummy to have to manage the mental model of asynchronous code. And this kind of makes almost all that go away. And you can treat everything as synchronous, even when in reality it's asynchronous by just saying, hey, this this function is async. And at some point mm-hmm. I am going to await, hence the async await, I'm going to await mm-hmm. the result of some other async function. And, th- and that's kind of the short, short version. And it is exceptionally powerful and super, super cool. And I think that Latner, among others, have kind of hinted that that's what they would like to add to Swift at some juncture, but I think it's like two or three versions out at least. Yeah, just hearing you talk about that, uh, I I haven't looked at it in a a while, except I remember I used a Python uh, framework called Tornado, which I think did something similar. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm kind of familiar with this concept. And uh, yeah, that just seems like the way this should work. That, That makes all the sense in the world to me. It just you know, not having to write your, uh, not having to write your asynchronous code in a crazy different way than you write your non-asynchronous code necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And it it requires a whole lot of buy-in from the compiler authors, because like I said, in general, at least in C-sharp anyhow, a lot of this, uh, was, was compiler magic. And, and so it, it requires a lot of work on the compiler side, but man, does it ever make the developer side so much easier. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Um, so um, something else uh, that, that you'd mentioned to me previous to uh, the show, uh, or, or as Marco said, pod, right? He calls them pods. Is that correct? <laughs> I think ironically, but yes, I have heard it come from him from time to time. No, I'm, I'm needling him a little uh-huh. bit. I, I accidentally let that slip at WBC when we'd been drinking. Oh, but I, 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 said, I said pod, and he and me said, we're not friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were talking previous to the show about this, uh, and you, you mentioned actually uh, a minute ago, is uh, Rx Swift and functional programming. And I am a total functional programming noob. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is Rx Swift and why is this useful and why would I want to know more about this? Yeah, so this is 
probably a seven hour conversation that I'm going to try to distill into about seven minutes. But you kind of have to start with the base of the pyramid, which is what is functional programming. And I have a practical level knowledge of what functional programming is. So if you're someone who actually knows what functional programming is, you're probably going to take offense at something I'm about to say, but let's just understand we're all amongst friends. And this is just a general idea. And the general idea of functional programming is, hey, let's try to keep a few tenets in mind and let's try to make everything immutable wherever possible, which by the way, speaking of, helps when you have asynchronous development and, and you know, multi-threaded mm-hmm. development because things don't change out from under you. So anyway, let's try to keep things immutable. Let's try to use pure functions wherever possible. So a, a single function, it takes in everything it needs and it spits out everything mm-hmm. it could possibly change. And let's try to do that wherever we possibly can. So that's, that's an oversimplification, grotesque oversimplification of functional programming. On top of that, you layer reactive programming. So what reactive programming says is, you know what, rather than just sitting there and kind of polling to see if a user clicked a button or if, if something else has happened, let's push those events onto ourselves. So, and this actually came from .NET coincidentally, and there's an unbelievably good video by Eric Meiser, I think, and Brian Beckman. I'll, I'll, I'll give a link to Colin so he can put it in the show notes. The first like half an hour to 45 minutes of this video are just completely bananas math that you can ignore. So that link that we'll put in the show notes will be a, a timestamp link to when it becomes palatable. But if you think about, let's take ienumerable. Or, well, that's a C-sharp thing. So let's take something that's enumerable, mm-hmm. right? So generally speaking, if you have, say, an array, when you're enumerating the, the array, you'll have an object that, that you can ask for, what's my current value? And you can tell it to move to the next value. And eventually mm-hmm. it'll say, oh, there is no next value. Well, that's kind of pulling out of an, an array, right? So let's say the array is one, two, three, four, five. So you're pulling, you're saying to the enumerable, okay, what's my current value? One. Okay, I've done something with one. Go to the next one. Do I have a current value? Yes, it's two. Okay, I do something with two. Go to the next one. All right, do I have a current value? Yes, it's three. Blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. Until you, run, until you run off the array and you get to six, so to speak, and then it says, oh, I'm out, and then you're all done. So what if we flip that on its head? And what if we said, rather than pulling each of those values, we'll push them onto you? So, so as this quote-unquote array, and obviously it really shouldn't be an array at this point, but as, this, as we walk through this array... I will say to you, Colin, I have one, do something with it. And you'll do your thing mm-hmm. and then just sit there and wait. Okay, Colin, here's two, do something with it, et cetera, et cetera. So if you imagine like a user interface, this is perfect, right? Because you're just sitting around, not you know, minding your own business until suddenly a button click happens or tap. And then a, a closure that you've provided is called and, it, and, and you're, you're told, hey, this button tap just happened. Now what? So that's mm-hmm. kind of functional reactive programming, right? Is rather than ha- wiring up like IB actions and things of that nature, we're just going to say, hey, when this button is tapped, run this closure. And in and of itself, that's mm-hmm. like, okay, that's, that, that's the, the yin to the yang, whatever. That's not, that, that's not that impressive or interesting. But where it gets interesting is you can do a lot of functional programming concepts against these streams of events. So... If we think of a button tap over time as a stream of events over time. So, you know, maybe you start your app and we'll call that time zero. And at time 10, you tap the button at, at time 20, you tap the button. And at time 22, you tap the button. So mm-hmm. what happens over time is that 
you can do you that 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 is called an observable is this this stream of events over time well what you can do is you can map an observable so you can say every time that button is tapped uh spit out the the name casey i don't know why you would but you could do it so you can map uh-huh. that that button tap to say casey casey at time 10 casey at time 20 casey at time 22 or you can combine observables and you can say okay when this button is tapped, I want to know the most recent value of the observable of the text of that UI text field. So maybe some, huh. maybe the user is entering their first name. So I enter the name Casey, and that means I'm signaling uh, an observable coming off that text field of C, C, A, C, A, S, C, A, S, E, C, A, S, E, Y. And then I hit the, the, I hit the go button. At that point, the go button says, okay, I've got a button tap then I'm going to combine it with the latest. And guess what? The function is actually called combine latest. I'm going to combine it with the latest value of this other observable. And now I have an observable that's of type string that in this particular moment has the value Casey. And so hopefully what I'm kind of awkwardly driving at is that when you combine all of these different observables and all these different things, it becomes very powerful. Another great example. What if you don't want to have a user be able to enter a name that's less than five characters. Maybe it's like a username Uh or something like that. Well, observables have something called filter. So you can provide your own closure and say, hey, I only want this observable to make it through this filter to actually signal if whatever they've entered is at least five characters. So when I do C, C, A, C, A, S, C, A, S, E, none of those, none of those ever get called. Your your code never gets called for any of those. It's not until I type C, A, S, E, Y, that finally my, the, your closure is called and it says, hey, the user has entered Casey. And so it becomes uh-huh. super powerful, super, super quickly. And what's really nice about it is once you understand the, the Rx API, which by the way is available across a plethora of languages, once you understand the Rx API, it's relatively portable between languages and you start to really get how you can make these unbelievably interesting and occasionally, I don't want to say convoluted, but, but complex um, transactions and, and mutations happen just by combining the inputs of various different things. And so as a great uh-huh. example of this, like let's say in Overcast, you have a class that represents the state of the, of the playback. Well, that class could emit an observable, that's time. And maybe one observable, one place that that's used is to update a text field that shows what is the current playtime of the podcast. And so you just kind of wire these things up and then walk away. It's not nearly Uh as prescriptive or maybe descriptive is a better word for it. It's not as descriptive as, okay, tell me play status class. What is the current value? Okay, text field, update yourself. And and, oh, by the way, I need to do this every one second. So I need like an NS timer or something like that. Like this all just Uh happens magically. And it's super, super powerful and super weird. And the best thing I can do if you're interested in this, other than watching that Brian Beckman video, which we'll put a link in the show notes, is I did a series of posts on this at the end of last year that take the world's dumbest uh, iOS app. It is truly terrible. It just counts the amount of times you've clicked a button and show you how to, how to kind of go from the imperative version and the traditional version of that to the RX version of that. And it shows you how uh-huh. RX makes it super easy to test, super easy to wire up, and super, super, super powerful. And the key more than anything else is that when all you're doing is kind of connecting tubes, you know, you're, you're connecting the output of one thing into the input of another, that means that your state kind of goes away. 
And if your state mm-hmm. goes away, if you're not tracking state, there's there's far fewer, far less of a surface area for bugs to creep in because typically a bug is your program's kind of mental state of the world not matching the actual state of the world. And when you're not holding any state, well, it's pretty hard to get that wrong. That makes that 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 checks out. Um, yeah, no. Uh, part of what you said reminded me. I, I know these are like totally unrelated things. <laughs> part of what you said of the benefit, though, of um, you know, not having to manage some of those things reminded me a little bit of Cocoa Bindings. Have you ever played with that? A little bit, and yeah, yeah. It is very, very similar. It's it's that, but but taken to eleven. Uh, so the question I had about that would be. So when you're working in this RX Swift world, how much does that separate you from being able to do the normal things you would want to do in UI kit and whatever? Like, is it a total, like, are you more, are you really separated away from the core frameworks or is it pretty easy to drop down and just do the normal things if you need to? So it's a simple question with kind of a multifaceted answer, right? So um, there is RX Swift, which is just, the idea of observables and, and other things like drivers and variables and things like that. And that is not unique to anything. It's just unique to Swift. Mm-hmm. On top of that, though, there's RxCoco. And what that provides is bindings for most UI elements in both macOS and, and iOS. So as an example, with RxSwift, you would have to manually figure out how to do an observable that, 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 is, that emits the value of a text field. With RxCoco, mm-hmm. you get that for free. Additionally, what that means is you can, using the RxCoco bindings, it will let you not only get the output, so to speak, of a, of a text field, for example, but an input as well. So you can say, hey, whatever this input, observ- you know, whatever this observable is, what, by whatever magic we've created it, just feed this value into a traditional UI text field, and that's how you will set that UI text field's text. And so what mm-hmm. I'm saying in a roundabout way is there's nothing precluding you from doing plain vanilla Swift and Cocoa Touch, but by leveraging RX Swift and RX Cocoa, you can make a whole lot of this stuff a whole, whole lot easier. And so you can do it really whichever way you want, but once you really, really get a taste of this weird new world, you're not going to want to do anything different. Well, I'm gonna. I know what my next uh, test project I need to create is, because uh, it sounds interesting, and I think I'm gonna have to try it now to find out to understand what you're really talking about. Yeah, you you absolutely have to try it, and I have to warn you that for me to to go to go back a half step to me when I learned Objective C, I was so frustrated by it because it just felt freaking wrong. Like there's array indexers all over the place. Like why are we using these square brackets everywhere? This is just stupid. And it, for the longest time, I just felt like it was gross. And all of a sudden it was like seeing the matrix, right? You, you see the people mm-hmm. in the matrix and it just clicks. And then it's like, Oh, Oh, I get it. Yeah. Objective C is actually really cool. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I, I would warn you that I think this would be something similar, right? Where at first you're going to say, Oh, Oh, this is terrible. And in fact, in my five-part series that I did, you'll notice, and I think I do call it out, at the very end of it, the code that I have that is the RX version is actually several lines of code longer than the completely vanilla Cocoa Touch version. But the difference is, is that I would argue that the RX Swift version is considerably more testable. And beyond that, it is also without state. 
which is super, mm-hmm. super important. And so there are advantages to it. Also, that was a really crummy example because where RX really shines is the, you know doing hyper complex things by just wiring up a handful of observables, whereas this was you know the world's dumbest app, like I said. So mm-hmm. that's all a very long way of saying don't don't get discouraged if it doesn't click immediately. It took a couple of months of me doing this all day, mm-hmm. every day for it to really, really click, which you can make an argument that maybe that's, that's a sign that it's not good. But now that I've seen the matrix, oh my gosh, I don't want to go back. No, it seems like it would be worth finding out about at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think anything you can do to remove state is a good thing. Um, You know, I guess, asterisk, because I haven't (laughs) actually used this framework yet. But, uh, you know, less state, less state and less having to manage state is a good thing, because in my uh, experience, you know, that is a very high percentage of bugs you have in an app is something to do with that. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, Casey, uh, I think, you know, we have come up on our hour, although there isn't actually a time limit on the show. I just said that. (laughs) But this is, uh, we have come up on the end of everything that I wrote on my outline anyway. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing, uh, you know, all of your experience and whatnot with us. Well, thank you so much, Colin. No, me. It's it's a total pleasure. The show is great. I I would say that to be nice, but I have listened to if not every episode, almost every episode, and it is really great. And uh, I really like having these kind of interviewee shows, and they seem to kind of go in and out. And somebody will do one for a while, then they'll they'll fizzle out. And I hope you stick with it because these sort of interview shows are really great. And you've been able to get some personalities that I either hadn't heard enough of or just hadn't heard of at all, which is really super awesome. So thank you. It's it's genuinely an honor to uh, to be asked to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much. It's genuinely an honor to have you on, and I am planning on doing this for as long as I can find, uh, d- you know, people to talk to. Although once that happens, I'll probably just start, you know, I'll probably just start having repeat guests <laughs> if I ever run out. Although I suspect it'll be a very long time before I run probably. out. Probably. Um, yeah. So, uh, where can people find you? Sure. So my website is caseyliss.com. I'm on Twitter as caseyliss. Uh, that's C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. That's caseyliss. My uh, show my show with Marco and John is the Accidental Todd Tech Podcast. Gosh, I keep fumbling it. But the Accidental Tech Podcast. I did it again. I'm a disaster. I got to go to bed. The Accidental Tech Podcast, Third Time's a Charm, which is at atp.fm. Additionally, I do a show with Mike Hurley uh, called Analog, and that's at relay.fm. And if you do want to listen to Neutral, if you want to listen to three computer nerds talk about cars, that's at neutral.fm as well. Fantastic. Uh, and if you would like to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at Colin Donnell. Uh, you can find the show at The Run Loop. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon and help me pay for my uh, gear addiction syndrome and hosting <laughs> of uh, you know the show... Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. Uh, Casey, once again, thank you so much and have a great evening. Thanks. You do as well.